Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 17, <clears throat> as we've been working our way through this gospel that has been teaching us so much and challenging us in so many ways. In our most recent discussion of God's kingdom, Luke's gospel is pointing out two aspects of this godly kingdom that are both equally important to grab a hold of. The kingdom of God is with us now, and at the same time, the kingdom of God is yet to come. So there's this do, two aspects of God's kingdom, and we don't want to forsake one of these aspects to focus only, only on, on the other. We want to make sure that we understand both of these concepts and that they affect our lives in ways that glorify the Lord. This is good news, this idea of the not yet kingdom and the, and the kingdom of now, that the kingdom has come already. Because while we have much to look forward to, in the meantime, we aren't deprived of the real presence of Jesus until he takes us up home to be with him. The kingdom has in so many ways already come. It is already making an impact on us here and now. And we can know our God and be near to him today. To limit God's kingdom only to some future sense is to miss out on the obvious and important manifestations of that kingdom as we walk the earth in the present day. At the same time, we do have much to look forward to. Jesus, in this passage that we're going to be studying today, is going to point our eyes forward now and remind us that as much as the kingdom has come, there is still much for us to see realized in the kingdom of heaven. Raise your hand if you are a married person here today. Few of you, okay. There's clearly a difference, isn't there, between dating someone and being engaged to marry them, right? Once you become engaged the level of commitment jumps up a notch. You are now locked in for all intents and purposes. You have declared your intentions to spend the rest of your life with this one individual. There's more attention paid to preparing for the future between the two of you. Your lives begin to become more intertwined one with the other. And you're spending more and more time together towards the realization of that goal of being married. Now at the same time, an engaged couple has a present commitment that is real and that comes with great joy, but it doesn't rival the joy yet to come at the consummation of that covenant. Engaged couples are happy to be so, but they are ultimately looking forward to that ceremony that will make a drastic change in the way that those two individuals relate to one another. And so God's kingdom is in much the same way, similar to a period of engagement where we need to recognize that God has called us His. We now belong to Him. We have entered into agreement with Him. Life has changed, and our future is now being planned together with Christ and with the Lord God by the power of the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, we look forward to a consummation of this relationship that's going to be greater than we've ever experienced. And so we look forward to that kingdom come, that kingdom that will become more increasingly a, a union of both God and His saints whom He has saved through the Son. And so as we come to Luke chapter 17, Jesus is going to turn His attention now from the present kingdom to the future kingdom. So let's read this. Starting in verse 22, God's Word says, Then Jesus said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here, and look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning 
that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to another part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Notice in verse 22 there, in the passage that we just read, the section begins with a shift in audience. Last week, Jesus was addressing a misconception that the Pharisees were clinging to regarding the kingdom of God. They recognized that there was a coming kingdom, but there were many ways that they were seeing it wrongly. And so Jesus specifically addressed those Pharisees that were among the crowds that had gathered to hear him and addressed their misconceptions. Some of those misconceptions are shared by people in the world today, so it's good that we have that in Scripture and we could learn the same lesson that those Pharisees needed to learn. <clears throat> and now here, Jesus aims his teaching at the disciples, those who have given their life to follow after him and have agreed and said amen to the things that he has said, the things that God has ordained him to preach. Rather than the Pharisees who needed to hear about the current kingdom, Jesus begins to talk to his disciples about the not yet kingdom, the kingdom to come. The things of God's future kingdom apply more to those who trust in Jesus because they are the ones who will one day enjoy that consummation, that full realization of the relationship that God wins us to through Christ. <clears throat> in verse 22, Jesus refers to the days of the Son of Man. And he tells the disciples that there will be a period of time coming shortly in which they will long for the Savior to return. They will long for one of these days of the Son of Man. They are currently experiencing that amazing blessing of having Jesus in their midst, of being able to witness Him do miraculous signs on behalf of God in proclamation of the truth. They're being able to hear Him preach the gospel and to confront misconceptions and even sinfulness within the nation of Israel. They're seeing this firsthand. And there will be a time, says Jesus, when he is no longer present with them, where he is no longer face-to-face -face with these men, and they will long to have that time with him again. They will long for him to return after his period of absence. Furthermore, since they know that there is a coming aspect of the kingdom, they will greatly desire that Jesus return to establish that coming aspect of the kingdom in its fullness. So they will desire his person. They will also desire the completion of his promises, that he will come and restore and fulfill this kingdom that he has been preaching about. You and I can relate to this. It is often so difficult for us to maintain our focus on eternity, to think and be mindful of what is to come when believers for so many generations have waited in anticipation for literally hundreds, literally 2,000 years now, we have waited hopeful that we would see this promise fulfilled, that the Messiah who is responsible for our salvation would come like lightning and reveal himself to us. The scripture has preached that we are to be ready and we're going to talk about that today. And yet the church for generations has waited and waited and waited. We can sometimes feel the mocking eyes of those who look upon Christians and think in their minds, if Jesus is going to come back for his church, then why has it been 2,000 years? Why hasn't he done it yet? Are you believing a promise that is empty? Do you have a hope with no foundation? When are they going to give up waiting for this Jesus who probably will never come? We probably suspect others think of us in that way from time to time. This yearning 
for the return of our Savior might leave us open to potential deception. As we so desire to see the evidence of that promise fulfilled, those who make claims that Jesus has come might find us so yearning for the return of Jesus that we might fall for these schemes. And so Jesus warns us about this in the passage we just read. There will be false claims regarding that not yet kingdom and we've got to prepare ourselves to be ready to face those claims. We have to have discernment. When they come, warns Jesus, we are not to go after them or to follow them. When somebody claims that Jesus is coming here or when Jesus has come in this area or that he's coming on this particular date, we've got to be so careful that we don't get swept up with our hope of seeing Christ again that we fall for these false claims that have no real prophetic foundation. And there have been no shortage over the generations of people who love to proclaim that they have unraveled the mystery that people for centuries have not been able to unravel. There, I think, is a sense of pride that people want to possess, knowing that the mystery of Christ's second coming might be figured out by one sharp mind, one superior intellect, one great faith. One of the latest and most famous examples of this false proclamation was from a man named Harold Camping, who was a radio preacher. He actually served at a church in Alameda for several years before conflict there caused him to leave his post and begin Family Radio, where he broadcast several radio programs, including his own programs where he would go on the air and interpret the Bible for people. His first prediction about the second coming of Jesus came in 1992 when Camping published a book that predicted Judgment Day was likely going to occur in 1994. But in that book, he also hedged his bet a little bit and he did say and confess that he might be off and if one of his calculations was a little bit different, that it might be 2011 when that judgment was to come. So when 94 came and went and judgment did not happen, uh, Camping became more bold in his pronouncements. He announced his calculations were now complete and that Jesus would indeed return to earth on May 21st, 2011. I don't know if you remember this, but it was in a lot of the papers. It got a lot of press. Camping used the influence of his radio station uh, to really rile up many people within the body of Christ and make them believe that the time had come, that Jesus was returning. And some of these people with good intentions and with a desire to see their Savior come and fulfill this promise, many of them believed Him so wholeheartedly that they figured, well, all the things that I own now don't really mean a whole lot because in a few short months, in a few short weeks, they are going to be of no value to me. I'll be leaving this place in rapture. So I will sell my goods and give everything that I have to the proclamation of the gospel so that we can try to share the, the hope of Christ with as many people as possible before May 21st when Jesus returns. People were very convinced that it was going to happen. It was, a, it was a small but faithful following. And over the course of several months, more actually several million dollars came in in support of Camping's desire to warn the world of the coming judgment. Now on May 21st, of course, though there was great anticipation to see how he would react, the date came, the date went, and there was no 
obvious appearance of Jesus Christ as had been predicted by Camping. Individuals like Camping mourned the fact that these predictions had been wrong, even though a simple reading of the scriptures such as we are going to be doing this morning would have given them foresight into the fact that no one knows the day or the hour when Jesus comes. Sadly, many people who had sold out their goods were then in a very difficult space because they had no homes now. They had no life savings. All that they had put together to sustain them to the end of this life was spent. And albeit it was spent on something worthwhile, the spread of the gospel, but now all these people with broken hearts had to reevaluate where they stood. And many of them even questioned their faith. More than losing their resources, many of them struggled to believe that perhaps Jesus was coming at all because this man whom they had put so much faith and trust in had steered them incorrectly. We even see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Jesus had to assure the church in Thessalonica that rumors Jesus had returned and that they had been left behind were unfounded. He had to assure them that when Jesus came, they would know it. They would be a part of that. It would be obvious to them because they were true believers. And so this is not a new occurrence. It has been happening again and again, generation to generation. And we will hear more people who try to convince us with confident voices that Jesus is coming on such and such a date or in such and such a place. And our Savior warns us, do not fall for that kind of false hope. Trust instead in my words that no one knows the day or the hour when I will return. Now there's some different possible reasons why people continually try to pinpoint this date and predict it. I think one of them is the idea that it just feels so good to know something that other people don't know. This Gnosticism, this idea that there is some secret knowledge that only God's favorite people get to hold dear is a a fallacy that has been infecting the church for generations, even since the earliest church. We see as early as the second century, an ancient Greek form of Gnosticism, of secret knowledge, was starting to lead some people of the faith astray. And yet God's truth is plain to us if we would just open his book. I think for others, knowledge gives them a misleading sense of self-control. We don't like not knowing anything. We want to have an understanding of what's to come. And so some of us are so uncomfortable with this idea that Jesus could come whenever he feels like coming, whenever the time is right on his clock, that we struggle with that and it makes us anxious. And so this hope, this idea that we might be able to know, okay, he's coming then or he's coming there, might then give us a sense of control over our destiny or a feeling of security that we don't currently have. Others, I think, just like arguing for the sport of arguing. And so if somebody says it's not going to happen, they say, well, I'll prove you wrong. I'll tell you when it's going to happen. And no shortage of mathematicians and historians have done everything they could to try to figure out exactly when Christ is going to come. But I can only tell you this. If someone predicts Christ is going to come on such and such a day, go ahead and plan your birthday party for that day because it's not going to happen on that day. It won't be spoiled. Verse 25 makes one thing clear regarding the second coming of Jesus. The manifestation of the not yet kingdom is contingent on the suffering of Jesus Christ. He cannot come back until he has first fulfilled what God has called him to this earth to accomplish. He needed to make it to Jerusalem. He needed to preach the truth there. He needed to be accused of sins that he did not commit. And Jesus needed to allow himself 
to be put to death for those crimes for which he was not guilty. In doing so, Jesus knew he was preparing to take upon his own shoulders the sins of all the faithful. This had to happen before the real manifestation, the full manifestation of the kingdom was going to be realized in this world. And this prerequisite, of course, has been fulfilled. Luke's readers, those who first received this gospel, namely excellent Theophilus, Luke's friend, who perhaps commissioned the writing of this book and supported Luke so that he could write this, and all the other believers in the early church who got to read this gospel and be encouraged by it and be edified by it, knew that Jesus had indeed made it to Jerusalem. They knew that he had given his life on the cross and furthermore, they trusted the testimony of many who proclaimed that Jesus had indeed risen from the grave on the third day and was reigning victorious at the right hand of the Father on high. And so Jesus had fulfilled this one prerequisite that he tells us here in Luke 17 must happen before his return. Consider for a moment that what Jesus makes clear to us concerning his return here we're going to borrow some from Matthew's gospel for a second for the sake of clarity. Matthew has a section of scripture that highlights many of the, the same concepts here that are preparing us for those who might preach false prophecy about when Jesus is going to return. So I want us to look at a few verses beginning in Matthew chapter 4, verse 36. Jesus says, and it's recorded in Matthew's gospel, but of that day, the day of his coming, the day of judgment, of that day and hour, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only knows that day. So we can discern from this passage in Matthew that no one knows when this kingdom is going to come. No one has a clue about the day. No one can pinpoint it and write it on the calendar and circle it. It's impossible for us to understand it. Matthew 24, verses 42, the Son of God proclaims to us, Watch! Therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. And so we learn from that statement of truth that we are to be watching and looking out for it. He doesn't say, do everything you can to predict it. He does not say, give us your best guess. He says instead, be on your watch. Keep your eyes open so that when these things come, when these things happen and are realized, you will not be ignorant to them. And then Matthew 24, verse 44 says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. We are to ready ourselves for it. We are to make sure that we are prepared for when the coming of Christ happens. So friends, that is the charge that is given to us. That is what we must concern ourselves with. We don't know all the details of the coming kingdom, but we can take great joy and comfort in knowing that when Christ says, prepare yourselves, we can say, amen, Lord, we will do just that. We will keep our eyes on the eternal. We will make sure that we are not ignorant to the fact that Jesus does promise a return and that it can come anytime. These, last, or these three assertions should define our attitude towards the return of our Savior. Now here's something to consider. If we were able to discern when that would happen, if somebody like Harold Camping happened to be right and was able to proclaim to us, get ready, May 21st, 2011, that's when it's going to happen, what kind of an impact would that have on the church? Have you ever considered 
why God does not always give you the answers to the questions you've asked, sometimes there are very practical reasons why you are left functionally in the dark on some things. Matthew 24, 36, where Jesus proclaims that no one will know the day or the hour. If anyone did know the day or the hour, would disprove Jesus, wouldn't it? If Harold Camping was right, what does that say about Jesus? It says that Jesus is wrong. Why would we scramble to try to pinpoint a date when to do so would cast shade on the prophecy that our Savior gave to us that no one will know the day when he's going to come back? Without thinking about it, some of these would-be prophets are damaging the possible testimony of Jesus Christ, the one who they claim has saved them. If we are correct on a date and knew the day of Jesus' return, then by proxy we would take the whole scripture into question because now part of it would be an error. So it doesn't make sense for us to strive to know that time when Jesus is going to return. We must trust instead and let the Lord reveal when he's ready to reveal. Secondly, if we knew the date of when Jesus was going to suddenly appear to us, would we have a real need to keep watch? How many movies have you seen in the 80s where mom and dad go on vacation and son knows that he's got six days before they come back and so he decides he's going to throw a party because he's got plenty of time to have this party, to clean it up and to get rid of his mess before mom and dad show up, right? Now I'm not saying that we should have the mindset that as long as Jesus isn't back we should do whatever we want but I know the heart of man and I think you probably know the heart of man as well. That when we know that there is no urgency for the return of Christ, if we knew that the date was far away, how would that impact our mindfulness of the coming kingdom of God? The fact that it could happen as I preach this message means that we should ever have a heart that readies itself for the return of Christ, that we should be thinking about this, that we should be anticipating it, that we should be hopeful for it. Knowing the date would ruin some of that for us. Some of you have a DVR at home. Some of you have recorded sports events before with the full intention of going back and watching that sports event as if it was live for you. Maybe you had to go to work or maybe you had a family function and family's more important than sports. Right, guys? Right. Right, there you go. Okay. And so you went to your family event and you thought, I'm just not going to listen to the news. I'm going to turn off the phone and I'm just, when I get home, I'm going to sit in front of that TV. I'm going to watch this thing. And every shot, every score, it's going to be new to me. And then somebody spills the beans and tells you the score. <laughs> tells you the score of the game. So you had this plan, this design to go home and watch it. How many times do you actually go home and spend all three hours watching? Now, I know some people would. You know, they just, they're so committed to their team, they just want to watch the whole thing out. But for me, I'd be like, well, there goes a lot of the joy of it, right? I'm not going to spend my time watching that whole game. Now I'll just go watch the highlights or whatever. But it doesn't have the same feel to it. And so if God were to have given us a date and a time, I think in many respects it would have taken away some of the joy of waiting, some of the excitement and the anticipation of not knowing when Christ is going to come back for us. It changes a little bit the dynamic of our expectation. We can, we can wake up each new day saying, is it today, God? Is it today that you're going to come back? 
If it is, may I be about your business. May I be serving you with my whole heart. May I be doing something eternal for you. May I use what time I have left to preach the kingdom to people who desperately need to hear it. Finally, if he's not coming back in my lifetime, if I knew the date and it just, it's funny how predictors always predict that Jesus is going to come back when they're alive, right? It's never like in 300 years Jesus is going to come back. Nobody makes that prediction. But let's say that there was a date predicted and it was hundreds of years away. There's not nearly as much a sense of urgency now to ready yourself for that second coming. And what kind of an impact does that make on your heart for evangelism? If you know that Jesus isn't going to come back today, then, okay, I'll talk to Uncle Fred about Jesus later. My neighbor seems interested, but I don't have time right now. I'm just going to do my own thing. Whereas we can walk through this world right now, not knowing when Christ is going to return, with the mindset that every moment we have to share the gospel, somebody might be the last chance we get. It might be time tomorrow for Jesus to return. So let today be the day of salvation. So in many practical ways, friends, you would be hurting fellow believers if you were to somehow discern the date of Jesus' return. But we don't have to really worry about that because Christ has made it clear to us you won't get it right if you predict it. We stubbornly desire to know when, but Jesus refuses to tell us and indeed is content to simply instruct us to ready ourselves for when these events unfold, trusting that when the time is right, they will indeed unfold. Mark 13.32 is another interesting scripture that I just want to bring to your attention real quick. This scripture tells us that even Jesus didn't know the specific time of his return. At least at the point of his ministry here on earth, in verse 32 of Mark, chapter 13, scripture says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So we have to realize that while Christ was truly man when he came to earth, he was not some you know, close representation of man. He was man, authentically, in nature. He also, at the very same time, was authentically divine. And yet, part of the benefits of his divinity were for a time humbled in him as he was on this earth. And so he allowed himself to be led by God the Father in faith, just as you and I must be led by God the Father in faith for while he was here. So Jesus, though he was omniscient and all-knowing, chose to not know all things while he was walking this earth. One of those things that he did not know was when he would return. So he literally could not give them the answer, when, Lord, where, Lord. I have to imagine that now that Jesus has ascended at the right hand of the Father, he knows again when he will come back to be with us. But if Jesus was not allowed to have that information on earth, what makes you think God's going to give it to us? The preceding verses in Mark do say that there is evidence that a season of the time of the end might be discerned, that we can understand that it, we might be getting closer, that things are beginning to accelerate towards that. But let us not be deceived into thinking that we can somehow discern the exact when of the kingdom that is not yet come. Let's continue in reading in chapter 17 of Luke. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. That's one of Luke's favorite titles for Jesus, the Son of Man. Verse 27, They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage 
until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and it destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So verses 26 through 30 give us two examples that would be pretty well known for anyone who is familiar with the Old Testament revelation. Noah and his position and place in the flood story. Lot and his position and place in the narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah and its judgment. These are two prototypes we can learn from. Noah, of course, was the one who, during a time of great wickedness on the earth, the scripture says that every man did what was right in his own eyes, and because every man's heart was corrupt, every man did what was wrong, thinking it was right. And yet Noah was one of the few who were still faithful to the Lord God. And so God, in his sadness over sin, speaks to Noah and says, Noah, I want you to build an ark, a great ship upon which you will bring animals of all different sorts of my creation. We will spare you and your family. We will spare these animals, but the rest of the earth is going to be condemned in a judgment that's going to make a huge impact on all that I've created. And Noah began to build this boat. Everyone criticized him. Everyone looked down upon him as a fool. It had never rained on the earth until that point. Moisture came from the ground. Mists rose and fall. Uh, the, the ecology of the planet was very different than it is today. And yet, Noah continued to build in faithfulness to the Lord God. And everyone else lived their lives. Everyone else continued to do their thing and live what they thought was best for them, to do right in their own eyes, and by doing so offend God again and again, as God alone is the only one who can tell us what is right. And so when the time came, Noah loaded that boat up, and the rain began. And the judgment came so quickly that these people who had great plans for their futures and thought they had plenty of days left to live suddenly found themselves under miles of water. The story of Lot is very parallel to this in which Lot, a faithful man of God, was living in a place that was terribly faithless. Sodom and Gomorrah is where we get the word sodomy from because of the sexual immoralities that were so rampant in this city. People went after the lusts of their flesh continually and disregarded the warnings of God's people, had no desire to praise and honor the creator of all things. And so God warned Lot, and Lot and his family packed up and left the city. And just as they did, everyone was going about their business, living their lives as if God did not exist until that mighty hand of God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. In each of these historical situations, sin was committed all the time as if normal. But you might realize here that in chapter 17 of Luke, Jesus doesn't bother to talk about their sins, does he? What does he say they're doing? They are buying, they are selling, they are eating, they are drinking, they are doing normal life, aren't they? They're just doing normal things. And yet, the judgment of God came upon them. It's not that sin wasn't there, but I think it's very interesting that Jesus here doesn't say they were wicked, they were wicked, they were wicked, they were condemned. But more to the point of what Jesus is teaching us, they were ignorant 
ignorant, ignorant, and they were judged. They would not see the things of God. They lived their lives as if he was nowhere around, as if he was completely irrelevant to their experience here in the created world. This should rest heavy on our hearts as citizens of the America that we live in today. America where people are so busy that even professing born-again Christians in this country can only find time to attend Sunday morning services to worship their God 1.8 times a month. That's the average confessing evangelical Christian. That's sadness. That's how little attention even the church pays to God who deserves all of our honor and glory and praise. We live in a present-day America where you've got to make an appointment to spend time with your kids because your kids are so busy with sports and extracurricular activities and the, the, the things their friends are doing that we don't have any time to spend together as families anymore, let alone time to spend with our God. As society marches on in the United States, where everyone is trying to achieve the lofty American dream of home ownership and financial independence, people are working so hard that they have nothing to give to the Lord, time or otherwise. We have a nation that has, by and large, become ignorant to the things of God. And these are the very warnings that Jesus is pointing us to as he tells us, church, to ready ourselves and to not live our lives day by day as if God has no part in it, as if God plays no real role in it. God is not just the God of the not yet. He's the God of today. So ready your heart today so that when the not yet comes, you'll be ready to see it happen and rejoice in it. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This world will march on, largely numb to the things of God, until with suddenness, like a flash of lightning, Scripture says, that is seen across regions, the coming of the Son of Man will be evident to all. For some, a joy. For some, a promise finally fulfilled. And for others, terror of judgment. <clears throat> We might also note that Noah and Lot were not exactly examples of perfect righteousness themselves. They had their flaws. They were faithful to the Lord God, but they messed up quite a bit. So don't take Jesus' readiness admonitions to make it sound like we've got to be in perfect order when Jesus comes. This is not a, a, a support of legalism, but simply our hearts need to be fixed on this Christ who will return for us? Do we love him enough to think about him day by day, to pray to this God that we love? Do we spend time considering his word and the things that he has revealed to us? Is he on our hearts and minds or has he no time in our schedule? Let us prepare ourselves to what has come. Verse 31 in chapter 17 of Luke goes on to say, In that day he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him come not down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken. Another left. And they answered him and said, Where, Lord? 
So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. <coughs> Verses 31 through 36 show us some practical examples of the sudden and unexpected nature of Christ's return. Each example is given as two individuals side by side doing something together. And then when Christ comes, we see a great contrast. One who loves the Lord will be then gone, and the other will be left. The one who is grinding at the wheel with her sister, the one who loves the Lord will be gone, and the other will be left. It'll happen in an instant. So what we see from this is that we can't hope that our close proximity to those who are believers is going to somehow result in our own salvation. You can't live in a Christian household and think, well, I'm surrounded by believers, so I must be saved. Each one of us must have our eyes on Christ. Each one of us must give our lives to Him in faith. Or the ones that we are near to today who do not believe, we will not be with them if they do not turn their hearts to the Lord God. And so these sad examples show how two in a bed, the, the Greek there is kind of ambiguous. It's probably more likely referring to a husband and a wife being in a bed. One of them a believer and one not. Though they are married, they do not go both to heaven if they do not each have faith. Each one must believe in Christ. Two co-workers grinding the grain. One goes and the other doesn't. Verse 35 is probably not in the original text. Most of our earlier manuscripts do not contain it, but it basically says the same thing. Two men working in a field, engaged in a productive activity together. One leaves and the other stays. <clears throat> and in the midst of this very short section of verses is a tiny little admonition that we don't want to pass over where Jesus says remember Lot's wife with all these examples be mindful of the wife of Lot if you are familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah you remember that Lot strived with the Lord asked if he would have mercy on this place and begged if there would be such and such number of people that could be found in the city that were righteous would you spare the city for those righteous people and God said, well, listen, if you can find that many people who are righteous, then yes, I will spare the city. And then he would make the number smaller because he knew the state of the hearts of the people in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew there were very few righteous people. And when it boiled down to it, there weren't enough righteous people to warrant salvation for that city. And so the judgment of God came as Sodom and his family were going out. And they were given very specific directives from the angels that were communicating this sudden danger to them. And they said, do not look back at this city. The idea being that our hearts should not be so connected to the things of this world that we are in any way hindered by them. That as God calls us onward to eternity, forward to faithfulness in Him, that we should not let the things of this world ensnare us, entangle us, and slow us down. That we might not be impeded by the things of this world, but that we might march forward to, to claim what has been given to us, an inheritance in the kingdom <clears throat> of God. <clears throat> and we read in the Old Testament account of Lot that sadly his wife, we have to presume because she loved the things of the world and the comforts that lay behind her, could not keep her eyes on what was ahead, but turned back to get one last glimpse of this world that had in some ways become more to her than her God. And she was turned in that moment to a pillar of salt. Her life was taken from her as evidence that she was not truly trusting in the Lord, that he was not her hope and strength, that she had instead worshipped the idols of this world 
and the things that so quickly can be taken away from us. So friends, we are being warned here that our hearts and our minds must be set on this eternity, that we cannot afford to let the second coming of Christ be a footnote to our faith that we think about maybe a couple times a year, but that it should be our everyday expectation that the God we know and love will return for His church. If our hearts and minds are so wrapped up in this world that we don't think about the things of eternity, but we are constantly thinking about those distractions of earth that will fade furiously in a moment, then we have to ask ourselves, where is our faith really? Is it in the one who alone can give us life? Or have we let our faith be placed in things that will die along with the rest of this world? These sad examples are a strong warning to us to keep our eyes fixed on the things that really matter. And of course, in verse 37, we see the disciples who, sadly but almost humorously, then ask a question at the end of all this teaching that is almost directly like the question that the Pharisees had asked of Jesus in last week's passage when they said, When, O Lord? In verse 37, the disciples say, Where, Lord? Okay, you won't tell us when, but where is this going to occur? Where can we keep our eyes fixed so that we'll see when you're coming? Because we don't want to be looking in the wrong direction. And so he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now the word for eagles there is probably better translated as vultures, birds of carrion. Luke is kind to us to say body there. When he could have chosen to use the Greek word corpse but that was a little too ugly for him, so he used the word body. But the impression that he's leaving there is that Jesus will come and we will see that he is about to come because of the state of the deadness of the world. Uh, You've probably uh, seen at some point in your life where there was an animal who was not yet dead but was on their last legs. Something was wrong with them. They were sick or injured. And you watch these birds who know that the end is coming. They are ready to do evil to the body of that animal that will not be long for this world. They are preparing themselves for it. On the flip side, we should prepare ourselves for the joy of the consummation of the kingdom. There's a great contrasting irony there that we should keep our eyes on what is happening in the world and not worry about geographically where it's going to be coming. Because we know that as the lightning flashes across the sky, so will it be obvious to all of us who believe that Jesus is here. But this foreboding picture of death, which Romans 6.23 tells us is the right consequence of our sin, points to the fact that while Jesus' return will be wonderful for those who believe, it will also mean judgment for those who do not. It has been, become more and more popular in the Christian church today to entertain the idea that there really is no literal judgment. That though the scripture talks about hell, that perhaps it is just a figurative, dangerous warning, but if God is a God of love, then won't he just save everyone? Won't he just bring all people into the grace of salvation through Jesus Christ, that God in his great mercy could never think of not saving someone that he will indeed bring all into heaven, not just those who trust in his name, but all those who have been created, each and every person who walks this earth. But friends, there is great consequence in letting ourselves fall into this, while it seems like a soothing theology, a a, a theology that sounds loving on the surface and comforting to us, is in such contrasting contradiction to God's word. 
Has God not said it and will he not do it? The scripture is very clear that a judgment is coming. That while we can rejoice in the fact that the coming of the king will mean the consummation for us, will mean perfect fellowship with God for us, will mean a new body that is not corrupted by sin, will mean a new heaven and a new earth, we can have joy in that reality. But we must also carry the, the heavy reality with us that for those in this world that do not yet know Christ, that will be their final end. And so as we think about the coming of Christ, let us also keep an eye on the sky, knowing that the death and the wickedness of this world that circles around waiting to eat those who have no faith in Christ should inspire us to do all that we can to reach out to this lost world and to give them the hope that we trust in, that Jesus Christ is a God of love and He is also equally a God of truth and justice and that He will by no means... Let sin go unpunished. That is why he went to such great lengths, friends, to allow his own son, Jesus Christ, to be punished for our sin so that he might pay in full the debt of sin that we owe to God. Sin must be defeated. And praise God, the one we sing about will defeat sin. Surely this world will not continue on in peril and rebellion forever. But God will come. And when he comes, it will mean life for those who believe and it will mean judgment for those who have chosen not to. And so God, God's people need to be about the business of not only anticipating his return, but inviting others to come and see, to taste and see that the goodness of the Lord God who has given us a reason for hope of the coming kingdom that will one day be here. Let's close it with a word of prayer as we thank the Lord God for teaching us from his scripture today. And then we're going to enjoy another blessing from him as we celebrate communion together. God, we thank you for your truth and we ask that you would help us to discern what is, what is right and what is wrong, Lord God, and help us to be humble enough to realize that you do not always desire to give us an answer to our question, but instead are content at times to say, trust and wait, be ready. And let me tell you when the time is now. Let me show you where these things will occur. God, you are a good God who is worthy of our honor and praise. We have every reason to believe that what you have said will come true. And so, God, let us rest in the comfort of knowing that though we might be out of control in this instance, we do not know when our days will be done, that you absolutely have our future in your hands. Thank you, God, for being in control, for being a sovereign Lord. And we pray, God, that you would use us to, to spread the, the message of hope and love to a world that needs it desperately, Lord God. We praise you and thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.